312 Moberly Lane. That means nothing to any of you. But this is the address of my childhood home. We moved there when I was seven, the year that my little sister was born. And my parents lived there for 26 years. Just a few years ago, my parents finally sold to sold their house to this small corporation called Walmart, who purchased every residence on a 350-acre block to build their new home office. And one of the times in the past couple of years, I returned there, I rode my bike by the house, and the house was sitting there empty, and the basketball goal was still above the driveway. And I remember shooting baskets there for hours in snow and rain. And I was really good shooting on the right side because on the left side there was this tree. And in the spring and the summer, the branches hung down so much I couldn't shoot from that side. So from the right side of that driveway, I could win all day long. It was in the backyard of that house I learned to push a lawnmower. It was in that home that one Christmas my entire family was gathered on Christmas Day. And my mom was coming home. And as she pulled in the driveway, she had forgotten the luggage carrier was on top of the house. And the entire family stood and yelled, no. And it didn't stop her. She destroyed it as she pulled into the garage. This house was there. I drove by it. I saw it. The next day, I rode my bike by that house, and it was gone. Completely destroyed. The house on the left and the house on the right were completely gone. My parents had hosted so many small group gatherings there, I didn't even count. They had prayer meetings, Bible studies. They had shown the hospitality of Christ to everyone who came through those doors, and it was gone. Now with this said, I cannot even imagine what it was like for Israel to come back and the temple be gone. Because the temple is not just a house. It is the house where the God of all creation dwelt. It is where the house where the glory of God descended to live amongst his people. And after 70 years, the people have come back from deportation. Their cities, their homes, and the temple were completely destroyed. Many of them had never been to Jerusalem. They were born in exile, so they had only heard the stories of the greatness of this temple. And it was gone. After 70 years, it was gone. But it's interesting to notice what the author, Ezra, who, I don't know if you have noticed, hasn't come in the book. He doesn't come into the book until chapter 7, almost 60 years after this. But it's amazing to see what the author does tell us about because it doesn't tell us a description of Jerusalem. It doesn't tell us how long it took for the pilgrims to come from Babylon to Jerusalem. It doesn't tell us the names of the cities that the people dwell in. But it tells us one thing. The people of God are united as one person, and they've come to worship Yahweh, the God of the covenant. After 70 years, there is one thing 
that the author wants us to see, that as good readers of the text we must see, nothing else matters for this people than to come back and reestablish the worship of God alone. This is why they were created as a people. This is why Adam was created with Eve in the garden, to commune and to glorify God. And this is what they have done. This is what Jeshua, as we learned last week, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the seed of David, they are leading the people in doing the most important thing the people of God can do together. Worship Yahweh. And you see, there's many different things that the church and the people of God can busy themselves with. And so I'm going to ask you, what is the church of God? What are the people of God supposed to do as the people of God? Now, I've just kind of given you the answer, but don't think of that answer. You know, pretty high on the list is Christian education, teaching, both of adults and of our children. And I hope one of the things that comes to your mind is missions. Missions is very important for the people of God. We believe that as followers of Jesus, we are to make disciples to send them among the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is all a part of the church's mission. As a session of this church, we believe everything that this church does is a part of the mission of the church. And all of these things are great. They are all good things. Yet missions and Christian education is not the goal of the church. The goal of the church is to worship God. This is the primacy that Ezra shows in, God, in God's word. Because in the end, if we think that missions is the goal, we are man-centered. Rather, if we think the worship of God is the goal, we are God-centered. When Christ returns, missions will cease. And we will stand in his presence forever and worship him. Worship will remain forever. This is what John Piper says in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, about the worship of God. Worship, this therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. Let the, let the Lord be praised. Let the earth rejoice. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. But worship is also the fuel of this mission. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God preached. You are commanded what to do, not to cherish only the missions. But if a missionary never cherishes the divine presence of God, they will never bring the nations in. Missions begins and ends with our worship, and this is our aim, and this is our goal as God's people. Just as it is the aim of this people 
as they return from exile. The corporate worship and praise means that we are fulfilling our God-ordained calling as human beings. The praise and the worship of God. This is what this chapter is all about. This is the most important thing. This is what this author wants us to see. The most important thing this people, God's people, can do is to worship God. The first thing that Noah did when he came out of the ark is he built an altar. The first thing that Abraham did when he entered the promised land was build an altar. The first thing that Joshua did when they re-entered the land was build an altar to worship God for his faithfulness to his people. I'm not going out on a limb here. This is what the scriptures teach. This should be our priority. And whatever rank we put all of the important things, the worship of God should be number one for the people of God. So I shall ask you, where does the worship of God rank on your list of week-to-week things? How does the worship of God shape your week? Is Sunday the tack-on? Or is Sunday the headpiece that shapes the entire week? How does the worship of God shape our families? How does it shape our Instagram and Facebook and TikTok accounts? How is the worship the God the main thing of our lives? This is our purpose. This is the goal of all of history, to glorify God. No matter where we turn, no matter how important that one thing that you love doing is, how does that shape your worship of God? If you remember just a few weeks ago when I preached from Ephesians 1, do you remember the refrain that that kept coming up? You see, Paul described the great work of the triune God, how God the Father has predestined us for election in the Son, how the Son has redeemed us by His blood, how the Holy Spirit has applied the benefits of the Son to us as an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. And do you remember the refrain that Paul used at each one of those things? To the praise of his glorious grace. It's all about the worship of God. Every knee will bow before Christ in the last day. And if you don't see this, if you don't recognize this, you are actually missing the reason for your own creation. Our confession says it. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's where it starts. That is what we are doing here this morning. Worship is the priority of all of God's people. That's the purpose of this promised land is so that the people of God can come into the land where God dwells among them and his glory disseminates to them because he is their God and they are his people. 
And yet we find ourselves, as Peter tells us, in exile. And I, I, I do need to make one thing straight, is that the people in Ezra were exiled for their sin. Remember the, the very beginning we read Jeremiah, they were cast out because they did not listen to the Lord. And yet Peter says the church is now an exile. But the church is not exiled for the same reason. The church is not exiled for their sin. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. The church is saturated with sin. But the church is not sent into exile because of its sin. But the church now is actually sent into exile. Why? To proclaim the gospel. To bring the nations in. This is why we are in exile. This is the point of the mission of the church. To bring the nations in to be glad. Jesus said, this is why I have come, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God in all of the towns. This is the purpose of the gospel. This is the purpose of our Redeemer. To bring the people that God has created to come on a bowed knee and worship Christ. That's the purpose of this passage. And now we must look at how the people of Israel actually did this. And so in the first one, verse one, we see in the seventh month, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in their towns, the people gathered as one man in Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Zedekiah, Josadakah, with his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiphiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the Lord. They built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Then they set up the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it was written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required, and after that, the regular burnt offerings, and the offerings at the new moon, and at the appointed feasts of the Lord. And they offered, and the offerings of every one was made, and a free offering was made to the Lord. And I'm guilty of this, but very often I read something like in verse 1, and I read, you know, the seventh month, and I just kind of... I just kind of go over it. Well, we have to ask ourselves, what is, what is the seventh month? Is the seventh month how long it took for the people to come out of Babylon? Is the seventh month how long the people had actually been back in the land? And the answer is no. If we know our Bibles, if we know our Pentateuch, then we know that the seventh month is the most important month on the calendar for an Israelite. It's the month of Tishri. It's around September, October, and it is during this month that the Lord has prescribed for his people to celebrate the Feast of the Trumpets. It is during the seventh month that they celebrate the Day of Atonement. And as we see here, it is a month that they celebrate the Feasts of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this feast comes from a time when Israel used temporary booths to construct for themselves while the Israelites were in the desert after leaving Egypt. And the feast is what God commanded them to celebrate, to acknowledge God as their creator and God as their redeemer. 
First, the people were to rejoice in God's creative work and how he had blessed them for the produce, for the field that he had blessed them with throughout the year. And at the end of each year, they would thank God for this blessing, and they would ask God to bless them for the upcoming year. The seventh year was their new year. However, this festival also functions to provoke the redemptive memory for current and future generations. In this celebration, all members of the covenant community were reminded that not not only did God provide for their needs, but God redeemed them out of Egypt. So here in Ezra, this new Israel, redeemed yet again from a foreign nation, being brought out of exile, is being gathered together to commemorate what God has done for them on the seventh month just as God had prescribed them to do when they came out of Egypt. This is their one concern, to worship God the way that God commanded them to worship. And the first thing that they do is they set up the altar. And this altar does two different things. First, it reestablishes the sacrifices for the Israelite people. You see, the altar was set up outside of the temple. And it was in on the altar, as is described in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, that all of these sacrifices were to be made during the seventh month. Over 200 animals were slaughtered on the altar. Blood must have been everywhere. They were, they were prescribed to sacrifice bulls, male lambs without a blemish, and rams. Not to mention the daily, the morning, the evening, and the free will offerings. They had set up the altar because in to enjoy the presence of God in the temple, their sins had to be dealt with. You could not go into the temple if your sins had not been dealt with. And God told his people through the shedding of blood, through this propitiation of sacrifice, the atonement for their sins, these animals were burnt and lifted up a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You see, just as Israel's sins need to be dealt with, for us to enter into the presence of God through Jesus Christ, our sins need to be dealt with. You know, it, 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 it's really easy. It's really easy to blame the world for our problems. It's really easy to say, if it wasn't for this or if it wasn't for that, my relationship with, with God would be, it'd be, it'd be really great. But what the narrative of Scripture, what the Bible does, is the Bible turns the problem from the outside world. And there is a problem with the outside world. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what the scriptures do is it turns and it reveals to its reader that the problem isn't out there. It's also in here. And our sin has to be dealt with if we are to do what we were created to do. Worship God alone. There isn't enough tishries that could happen. There isn't enough bulls or lambs or rams that can be sacrificed to deal with our continual sin problem. 
they had to come back every year. Every year, the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies for the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice for his sins. And you get this, all the unknown sins of all the people. But the reason that we don't have an altar, the reason we don't celebrate Tishri, as Israel still does, the reason we worship on Sunday morning is that we are reminded that we are redeemed through the blood of Christ on the cross and the glory of his resurrection from the dead on the third day. We celebrate Easter every Sunday here because every Sunday we begin knowing that Christ's blood has redeemed us. And it is through Christ's blood that we enter into the presence of the triune God. What a price that God the Father set in motion for us in sending his son to the cross. The propitiation for our sins, the appeasement, the down payment has been made for us in the blood of Christ. And that is why we can come and worship Yahweh. This is what the author of Hebrews 9 tells us. That not only did Israel have to continually make these sacrifices to atone for their sin, but during that time, during the Day of the Atonement, that high priest had to go in. But yet, Christ has appeared as our high priest, better than Jeshua. Then through his great and more perfect tent, the meeting, not made with hands, he entered into the holy places, not by the means of blood or goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood. And listen to this, thus securing eternal redemption for his people. For if the blood of goats and bulls had been sprinkled of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience for dead works to serve the living God. They set up the altar to deal with their sins, but our sins have been dealt with on the cross of Christ. Our sin had to be dealt with. And now because of Jesus, Paul tells us, now we, the people of God, are a pleasing aroma. To God the Father. The other reason the people established the altar was what it signified. You see, the, the, the temple had been desecrated. The people of the lands had come and taken whatever they wanted. And as the author, as Ezra tells us in verse 3, the people were afraid of the people in the lands. And so the people set up the altar to show them, to prove that they had everything they needed to be safe. The presence of God was with them. Yet it would be probably it'd probably be pretty understandable that the people of God would come and build an altar however they saw fit, right? I mean they had been in Babylon for 70 years. A lot of the people, because they had never been there, I mean I'm sure they're asking themselves, what do you think the altar should look like? And we can just hear all the old people complaining. That's not the way it used to be. And of course, we wouldn't think ill of people built an altar however they desired. 
for, for the desires are good, right? As long as our desires and our feelings are good, whatever we do to worship God, then, 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 then that should be okay, right? We should be able to worship God however we see fit. Well, we have a problem. Because how easy it is of us, because of our sin, to be syncretistic. To bring in what we worship in the world into our worship of God alone. How easy it would be to combine just the, the little good things that the exiles learn while in captivity. Just as easy it is for us to take the good things of the world to worship God. But listen to the refrain in these five verses that happens four times. It happens one in verse three. They did everything as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. In verse three, it says, they burnt offerings of the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And then verse four, and they kept the feast of booze as it was written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule. And in verse 5, the burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon at all the appointed feasts of the Lord. This is what we call worship by the book. This is why we read Deuteronomy 12 for our Old Testament reading. The people of God do not come and worship Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, however they want to worship him. He sets the guidelines of how his people are to worship him. This, this past Christmas, we continually to get more Legos and more Legos and more Legos in our house. And they're landmines. I mean, that's all they are. They're just landmines. But if you did not have the Lego booklet to tell you each step of how to put them together, you would never figure it out. Because this some gray piece that's smaller than you can even see has to go in third. Because if it goes in fourth, you can't get to it. And if, it, if you're in step 16... It's over. It's all going to fall apart as soon as it's all there. The Torah, God's word has been provided for his people so that they would know how to properly worship Yahweh. His concern not only is in worship, it is with proper worship. And this desire, we think, can come back from a place like Daniel 9, where, as we will study in the men's Bible study, this is where it is believed that Daniel refound the law while they were in exile. And as the people came back, they were reinvigorated to follow the word of God on how they are to worship this God. They are to bow down and worship him. It drove Daniel to the floor. For he confessed his sins because he found the word of the Lord. God sets the standards for how his people worship him. He prescribes to us in his word everything that we are to do. The youth should know this because two years ago I, I took them through this bulletin and I explained from what part of scripture every aspect of our worship is either described or prescribed. We can either see God's people doing this or it was told, do this. Everything we do is word-focused. Everything we do is centered on the work of Christ. We do not make this up as we go. 
if John and I made this up as we go, we're going to a whole lot of hurt. And the people gathered as one man. As I look at the time, we're not going to get to the, the temple part. We're just going to stay in the altar. We'll get to the temple next week. They gathered as one man. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slave and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. When we come to worship Christ, we are unified in the one body of Christ. He is our head. He is our better Zerubbabel. He is our better Yeshua. Everything we do, we do for the glory of Christ. We do for the expanding of God's kingdom. And we do it in praise and adoration through the Spirit. What shapes your week? What shapes your devotion to God? Is it shaped by the Word of God? Is it pointed in the direction of Christ? How can you better shape your life around Jesus? And trust me, we need grace because we're all going to mess it up. But are we going to come here continually reminding each other and continually encouraging each other? It's all about worship. It's about the reading of God's word so that we might worship him. It's partaking of the word. It's seeing the visible word in the sacraments to strengthen our faith because our faith is weak. The writer of Hebrews encourages us in Hebrews 10. He says, therefore, brothers, listen to this. Since we have confidence, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full sense we or in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and he continues and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet one another as the habit of some. We are called through the Spirit living inside of us to stir one another up. Do you remember where we began in Ezra? God was stirring up Cyrus to send the people back. God was stirring in the hearts of the fathers and the leaders of the nation so that they might go back and glorify and worship God, for that was why they were created. 
Is this what shapes you? The worship and adoration of Christ. Is this what drives you through the week so that you can return to worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Amen.